Good morning, church. Uh, it, it's a, not every day you get to follow Dr. King onto a stage. Uh, and the, the sad reality is in most churches that look like Antioch around the country, uh, the pastor will not follow Dr. King. Uh, his name won't be mentioned. And I think a dream that he had, which is a dream for heaven touching down, won't be, uh, it won't be accelerated forward. And uh, I, for one, am proud to be in a place this morning where, uh, where I get to follow that. Uh, it makes me proud to be, um, to be in central Oregon and, and thinking about the fact that there's a dream to be made real. It's not Dr. King's dream. It's, it's God's dream for the world. And we get to be a part of ushering it in if we want to. Uh, so it's awesome. I'm, I'm stunned and, uh, and honored today to be with you. Uh, as always, I have friends from the Bay Area, from my church down in, in the San Francisco area, and um, they're in the room, and they're, um, they're actually hanging with friends who were some of the original pioneers of the DNA of this community, which is so cool how small the world is. And so it's fun for me to be in the room with them, and then you, the contemporary expression of Antioch's DNA for the sake of Bend and Beyond. Uh, and so it's good to be together with you here this morning. We're in a series on the Ten Commandments. And, um, you know, I've never done a teaching series on the Ten Commandments. And studying for this this week, I understand why I've never done a teaching series on the Ten Commandments. Good Lord. Um, uh, you know, so many of us have misunderstood the Ten Commandments as some kind of universal moral code for all of humanity. Uh, we've probably thought about um, the Ten Commandments as some kind of set of rules offered by a divine dictator who demands our perfection or maybe a scorecard by which our lives will be judged and our eternal destinations would be secured. And I have really good news, and then I'm all done. That's not what the Ten Commandments are. Thanks for being with me today. Uh, it's not what they are. At all. Last week, Pete helped us understand that this is actually covenant language. It's, an, it's a prophetic invitation into a particular way of life. It was offered to a particular bloodline at a point in time for a purpose. It was offered to the bloodline of Sarah and Abraham after they had been enslaved in the chains of Egypt for over 430 years. And the purpose was the restoration of the world. They were supposed to live a particular way of life, but they didn't know how to live it. And so this was an invitation into freedom. It was an invitation to a people who, though they were free, still lived like they were enslaved. And it began like this, no allegiance to anyone or anything other than me, the one who just set you free. Uh, now, I was sitting in here last week and it raised a question for me and uh, Pete addressed it, but I'm gonna raise the question and address it again. Why, as, as we are in like the new era, right? The era of grace, we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection. Why would we spend 10 weeks exploring the 10 commandments? Because it's way back in like the archaic Old Testament, right? Two reasons why I think this study is critical. Number one, uh, the law, it says this in the, in the New Testament, the law doesn't save us, but it reveals how much we need to be saved. And so when we study this kind, of, uh, this kind of text, it frames for us a way in which our lives are supposed to be marked. And I personally, as I've gone through this this week, I am a long way from even coming close to resembling the Ten Commandments. It reveals the need for the power of the gospel to move beyond my conversion into shaping me into a particular kind of person who images God to a watching world. But not just me individually, it helps us understand as a family how to live in a way that actually images the creator accurately to the watching world. So it's worth our time. It's worth our time. This should humble us. It should also uh, it should make us grateful that we've got a God who's faithful and loves us because he wants to, not because we can kind of attain some kind of moral code. Uh, the second reason I think this is worth our time is because we are a people, a family, who's been given a distinct vocation, and that vocation is the reconciliation of all things. Our lives together as a community, as a family, should be markedly different than anything else that's happening in our context. People should be able to look at this family and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. There is a God who is good, who is relentless in God's pursuit, who loves like crazy and is invitational into a mission of restoration. They live, that crew at Antioch, they live altogether different than the rest of Bend. 
And uh, I mean, I've been a pastor of a church and I, I hope that my faith community looked different and I'm not sure that we always did. So as we explore this particular text, I think it's important for us to analyze, to audit our life together as a community and ask some questions about how accurate are we imaging a very good God to the world? How distinct is our life together in this place? So I think it's, it's absolutely uh, worth our time. Uh, and so today we get, to, uh, we get to work with idolatry. Um, so, and I'm going to go super fast. So Joe Slide Guy is going to get a workout. So grab your Bibles or your devices because we are going to blitz through millennia uh, in the next 35-ish minutes, okay? So I'm going to frame it up a little bit and then we're going to go through the story of God together. I'm going to start by saying this. I come today, as always, as someone who's on the way. I'm not coming and preaching out of a space of expertise. I think we have to be wary of preachers who come and preach out of an area of expertise. Why? Because if they're, um, if they're an expert, first of all, they're deceived. They're not. Secondly, if I'm an expert in something, it means that I have arrived. I've figured it out. And if I've arrived and figured it out, I don't need the spirit anymore. So be wary of preachers who preach out of expertise. I would rather come from a place of journeying. I'm with you in this. And so I come to you today as someone who is very much on the way. I'm a recovering idol worshiper who is desperate for the power of the gospel to keep transforming my life and shaping and directing my allegiance to the one true God that was made known in Jesus. And so my thoughts today uh, come out of uh, my expertise as an idol worshiper, uh, if you will. Secondly, I'm really grateful uh, in this particular case for, um, for the teachings of David Clarkson, Dr. King, uh, and Timothy Keller, because they've really, uh, they're a lot smarter than me and help uh, shape my thoughts for this morning. Um, uh, bring up the first slide, if you will, Joe. Um, I, I want us to look at uh, some definitions. If we had all day to spend together, this would be the moment where I'd say, take out a piece of paper and a pen um, or take out your device and thumb through some definitions. But I would say, don't even use a sentence. Do it in a few words. Who is God? What is worship? What are idols? And what is idolatry? See, we talk about these things like we actually have legit definitions for what they are. Let me offer some definitions. I would encourage you then to maybe take a, a screenshot of it and just keep it up on your phone because I'm going to keep coming. It's like the buzzwords of the day are God, worship, idol, and idolatry. So it'd be helpful to like be able to reference this next slide. If you go to, to the slide, I, I would call God the, the giver of life, the ultimate giver of life, meaning, and value. I would say that worship is the all-encompassing response of devotion, of complete devotion. An idol is that which absorbs my attention, my imagination, and my resources that is other than the God who is the giver of life, meaning, and value. And I would define idolatry as the worship of counterfeit gods. The worship of counterfeit gods. God. So take a shot of that because it's going to be helpful to reference as we make our way um, through. As I've been going through the scriptures this week, I've actually been surprised by two things. Number one, how, um, how idolatry isn't like a little tributary in the story of God. It's like a major raging river through the entire story. And, and I, I, we're going to walk through that here in a little bit. But the, what I'm surprised by as well is that the Bible is actually a bit ambivalent on what idols are. Are they something are they nothing? On the one hand, an idol is, in the scripture, seems to be meaningless, an artifact, void of any life, an inanimate object. And then on the other hand, idols seem to wield an inordinate amount of power over us. They're tremendously powerful. They shape our lives. That's why we read Psalm 115.8. The psalmist is actually helping us understand that we as human beings worship something. Everybody worships something. And that which we worship, worship shapes our lives. Whatever we worship shows up in my behavior. And in the, the psalmist says, um, as we worship anything other than the giver of life, meaning and value, um, we who are animate become inanimate. Remember, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear. The psalmist is saying idols promise, uh, can't produce what they promise. 
Idolatry is killing us. And it's an insidious, silent death. We don't even know that it's happening to us. Over time, we just find ourselves with eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. Now, you might be sitting in the room right now and going, well, that's okay because idolatry is like bowing down to statues and stuff and sacrificing to them at temples. And, um, and we don't do that anymore, right? We'll talk about that. Uh, others of us are, are like, well... Um, Idolatry really isn't a thing then anymore, right? Because if we don't bow down to idols and we're not like sacrificing animals and our kids to them, um, idolatry must not be real anymore, right? We'll talk about that too. Uh, But after we've had this conversation this morning, if we determine that idolatry actually is a thing, then the question is, what do we do about it? Uh, And that's where we're going to end our time uh, this morning. So you ready? You with me so far? Okay. Adam and Eve. Let's start at the very beginning. All right. Humanity was created in community, by community, for community. I love that moment in Genesis chapter 2 when God actually enters the created order, gets on God's hands and knees in the dirt, and begins to shape humanity, right? And then at one point, exhales divine breath into humanity, and humanity wakes up in that moment. And what do you think was going through their mind? Whatever I am, whoever I am, whatever I'll become, whatever I'm ever going to need is going to come from the hand of the one who just exhaled life into me. That's probably what I'd be thinking, I think. Second thing they'd be thinking is, wow, I'm waking up into a story that's already in motion. It's a story that's not about me. It must be about the one who just exhaled into me. Then we find that humanity and God danced this divine dance. It was beautiful. They co-created. They, they stewarded all of creation. They were created by God to be like God, and they lived that out together with one restriction, don't eat from the fruit of that tree. So then the deception was, if you eat from the fruit of that tree, you will be like God. Now, isn't that odd? Because they were created by God to be like God and were doing it and were deceived into believing that if they reach for that fruit, they'll be like God. So idolatry, the idols in that moment became power and status and idolatry looked like them reaching for what they already had. Idolatry looks like our reaching for what we already have. They traded incomparable intimacy with God, with self-gratification, with immediate gratification, and then humanity's struggle with idolatry was born in that moment. Fast forward the clock. There's a, there's a woman named Sarai and a man named Abram. They lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Kind of cool. Um, now, let's demythologize this couple for a moment. How many of us understand the fact that Sarai and Abram weren't like gung-ho about God? They didn't follow God. They didn't know who Yahweh was. Joshua 24.2 tells us that, they, that Abram and his father worshipped idols. That was the predominant context of spirituality. In their context, that was their way of spirituality. The, pr- the predominant God in Ur of the Chaldees, common day Iraq, really close um, actually to Baghdad, uh, is uh, the worship of a God named Nana. Nana was the God of the moon, the most powerful God, the God of fertility. It was actually worshipped, if you take the next slide, at this massive ziggurat. That's, some of it still is intact to this day. That was the place where they sacrificed to Nana, the God of the moon, because all of their life was designed around the cycles of the moon. And so Abram and Sarai did not know who Yahweh was. They knew who Nana was. And in their context, the gods were distant. They didn't have any contact with humanity. They kind of were the puppeteers who made things happen. And everything that happened on the planet actually existed to serve the gods. So they had zero experience with any kind of intimacy or direct contact with any of the gods. And then isn't it interesting that Abram gets a direct invitation from a new god named Yahweh. And Yahweh says, leave your family, your people your religion, and go to a place that I am preparing for you. What's God doing in that moment? Meddling with his gods. 
Because if you're going to leave your family, your land, your religion, that's going to that's gonna toy with your worship of Nana. You're not going to be able to have access to the ziggurat anymore. Uh, if you're going to leave your family and your land, there's all sorts of internal idols around wealth and security and future and identity and all of those things that are suddenly going to be meddled with. Right? So Yahweh is beginning to meddle with the gods a bit. And for whatever reason, Abram and Sarai say yes. Why? Because it was the first time in their lives and in the existence of anybody that they'd known that a God had had a direct moment of contact with them. And if you read uh, through the book of Genesis, especially Abram and Sarai's story, you actually get to track their transformation. It's not like they just suddenly traded Nana for Yahweh. If you think about Genesis chapter 12, they take this journey, they end in a land called Canaan where they're graciously hosted by the already inhabitants of Canaan. And then Abram establishes an altar and sacrifices to God. And it's in Genesis 12 where Yahweh appears to Abram. And that's the moment where you literally watch in the hierarchy of Abram's gods, Yahweh goes here over Nana. Genesis chapter 14, he learns from Melchizedek, the high priest, right? He learns from Melchizedek that this is God, Lord most high, creator of the heavens and earth. This isn't one of the gods. This isn't the chief God. This is the God. So all of a sudden, Abram begins to change his language when he's talking about who Yahweh is. Genesis chapter 17, a covenant is established between God and Abraham and his family. And that is the moment when when Abraham officially says, Yahweh is my God and Nana is not. He is exclusively focused on Yahweh. So you see the transformation of an idolater to someone who is exclusively monotheistic and focused on Yahweh. Now, three generations later, uh, the bloodline renamed Israel after Abraham's grandson, Jacob, right? Find themselves uh, in Egypt, the contemporary empire. Uh, They're there because of a severe famine and they're hosted generously by the contemporary empire. And so for a short amount of time, they lived with a, a, a level of ease and comfort under the shadow of the Egyptian pantheon. Then a new God is born, And as he assumes the throne as Pharaoh, he changes the status of the people of Israel from refugee to slave. And for the next 430 years, Israel toiled enslaved in the chains of Egypt. Now, it was into this context that that a baby boy was born. And in the moment when this baby boy was born, there was a genocide enacted against all baby boys born to the family of Israel. So miraculously, this baby boy is saved because of the courage of his mama and his sister. She puts him in a basket, floats him down the Nile, is miraculously rescued by a woman who happens to be the daughter of a god, the Pharaoh's daughter. She picks this baby up. She's the one who names him Moses after some of the Egyptian gods. She drew him out of the Nile. And then Moses actually was raised with all of the very best that Egypt had to offer, including their spirituality. Okay, so let me walk this through and and get ready, Joe, because here we go. Um, Here's what that spirituality would have looked like. In Egypt, they had an entire pantheon of gods. There wasn't one chief god. They didn't have a major god. They had gods over spheres, gods over things. Now, the idea was uh, there's a god over every space and everything. And your job as a faithful Egyptian is to pay homage to all of the gods and goddesses. Because if you keep paying homage to them, they're going to do good things for you. So if you want your business to succeed, if you want your family to grow, if you want abundance and wealth, you pay homage to the gods as much as you possibly can. Okay, I'll talk through how that kind of creates a bit of a schizophrenic um, way of life in just a moment. But let me introduce you to some of the gods. This is Kanum. Uh, Kanum is the god of the Nile. Okay, next slide. This is Hecate. Hecate is uh, the goddess of birth. Kind of takes the shape of a frog. Uh, next slide. Uh, Geb is the one laying down on the ground. Uh, Geb is the god of the soil, of, of the ground, of the earth. Uh, next slide. This is Ra, the sun god Ra, that, was, uh, that was actually took the shape of a scarab beetle. And, uh, and what they thought, because um, in, in Egypt, they have uh, scarab beetles or dung beetles. And you know what dung beetles do? They create gigantic dung balls. And they push the dung balls all around. 
So what the Egyptians thought is that the sun is like a gigantic glowing dung ball and the way that it moves is that scarab, the sun god Ra, the scarab beetle, pushes it around the, the sky. And that's cool. Um, this, is the, uh, this is the god of livestock. His name is Apis. Uh, next slide. This is Imhotep. Uh, Imhotep is the god of medicine and health. Uh, next slide, this is Newt. So you have Geb on the ground. You've got Newt up in the sky as the, god of the, the goddess of the sky. Okay, next slide. Uh, this is uh, Thermusis. This is the, the, god, the goddess of fertility and the harvest. Next slide, this is Horus. Horus is the god of light. Uh, final slide, this is Renetet, and uh, she's the goddess uh, and protector of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's family. Okay, so that's just a part of the pantheon. Okay, but let me illustrate how crazy this gets. If I'm in my house as an Egyptian and I need to get to the Nile to get some water, here's what happens. I pick up my vase with hieroglyphics on it. And, uh, and I know that I'm going to the Nile, and so I'm going to pay homage to Kanum before I even begin. So I pay homage to Kanum. I step outside of my house. I'm on the earth. I now have to pay homage to, uh, to Geb. I'm under the sky, so I pay homage to Newt. The sky, the sun is in the sky. I pay homage to Ra, and the sun gives off light, so I'm going to pay homage to Horus just so that they do good things for me. That's before I begin my way. As I'm walking, I'll probably see fields, so I better pay homage to Thermusis because she's the goddess of fertility, right? And so if I want my family to grow, my business to grow, I better do well, right? So I'm paying homage to Thermusis. I see livestock, sheep, and cattle. I pay homage to Apis. I finally get to the Nile. I pay homage to Canum one more time, dip my vase, turn around, and do it all again back to your house. How often would you want to go for water if that was your existence, Right? It's mind-bending. It creates a schizophrenic reality. This is the spirituality that Moses was raised in. So if he's raised by the, the, by the daughter of Pharaoh, let's not dupe ourselves into believing that he had some kind of commitment to Yahweh. Now, what's odd is that in Exodus chapter 2, there's this moment when Moses, who is the grandson of a god, is looking down over all of whatever's going on down here, and he sees someone from his bloodline being beaten up by someone from his adopted bloodline. An Egyptian is, is, is beating up a Hebrew, a Hebrew slave. Something breaks open inside of Moses in that moment, and he enters into his first of two rescue attempts, and it doesn't go well. He kills the person from his adopted bloodline in protection of the person from his real bloodline. So despite the fact that he's raised in the epicenter of all privilege in Egypt, he still maintains his Hebrew identity somehow. He knows whose people are his and whose aren't. Right? He attempts another rescue attempt sh shortly thereafter. He, he's, he's discovered to be the one who killed uh, an Egyptian uh, uh, guard, and then he finds himself as a fugitive in the wilderness tending the flocks. Right? It's in that moment when Moses is a fugitive running for his life from a God who wants to kill him that God chooses to show up and have another personal encounter with a human being. Amazing, right? So you have, again, the gods who are distant— uh, and Moses is raised in that. He maintains Hebrew identity. And then there's this moment in the wilderness when he's a fugitive in the middle of an identity crisis that God draws near in the form of a burning bush, which is eternal combustion without consumption. Amazing. So is, is Moses in this moment going like, oh my gosh, it must be the real God. No, he's like, wow, uh, the God of the will, the God of burning things. This must be a new God, which is why when God, Yahweh, calls Moses over, what's, Mo what's Moses' question? It's translated, who are you? But his real question is, which one are you? Which God are you? What's your name? How can I identify you in this huge pantheon of others? How does God answer? I am. I am not one of, I am not one of many. I am not the unknown chief God. I am the, I am one, I am it. And Moses, I'm inviting you to join me in, a, in an adventure of liberation, of restoration, right? And after some negotiating, Moses finally says, yes, he returns to the place of a God. He returns uh, to Egypt. He, he returns to the epicenter of the empire. And then he, God does this crazy thing. God actually proves to Moses how one, how it, how the 
he is. Let me show you how just really quickly. First plague, what was it? Water to blood, including the Nile, the vein of life for the Egyptian people. So if God turns the Nile into blood, apparently Yahweh is superior to Kanum, the God of the Nile. Next plague, what was it? Frogs. If you go to the, go, go, Joe, go, Joe, you're doing it, buddy. Yep, so Kanum, so Hecate, right? The, the, the goddess of fertility, the one who looks like frogs. Interesting. Yahweh must be superior to Hecate. Next slide. Um, lice came up from the ground and overwhelmed the people. Yahweh must be superior to Geb. Next slide. You have the sun god, Ra. Swarms came and blotted out the sun. Yahweh is superior to Ra. Next slide. Boils that nobody could cure. Yahweh must be superior to Imhotep, the god of medicine. Next slide. Oh, sorry. The last one was Apis. All the livestock died. God must be superior to Apis. Boils. God must be superior to Imhotep. You get the gig. Keep going. Uh, the, uh, uh, the locusts came from, locusts came out of the sky, right? Or hail came out of the sky, must be superior to Newt. Next slide. Um, locusts came and overwhelmed the fields. God must be superior to Thermusis. Next slide. God turned the day into night. Where is Horus now? God must be superior. Yahweh must be superior to Horus. Last slide. Or the last uh, plague was death, which, means, which meant that a god died. The son of Pharaoh died. Where is Runetetet? Yahweh must be superior to that one too. God is teaching Egypt a lesson, but God is actually reinforcing for Israel, I am your God. I am not one of many. I am it. I am thee. I am one. And then he takes this people into a wilderness wander. And as Pete said last week, th about three months in, God says, now I'm going to have to teach you how to live because you're free, but you don't know how to live free. Now, I don't know how many of y'all have been to Holocaust museums or, um, or been to Auschwitz or, or anywhere like that. There are all of these images throughout the Holocaust of, of folks who actually etch things into the walls, like things like, how can there be a God? Things like this are happening to, like trauma makes people go, there cannot be a God because if there was a God, then this would not be happening to us. And the Holocaust in the scope of this story is a very, very, very short amount of time. So if that level of trauma and that level of, of time can cause people to walk away from God, imagine 430 years of wretched slavery, what that does to warp a person's soul, a people's soul right? They're free, but they have no idea how to live free. They're traumatized, societal PTSD. God says, I need to teach you how to live. And he begins with no allegiance to anything or anyone but me. And while God was offering this prophetic invitation to this group of people about how they can live free, they're down at the base of the mountain going, yeah, this unknown God is scary and kind of sucks. The one who set us free from Egypt, what's he doing for us now? We're like, what, at base camp? This is terrible. This doesn't work for us. We need a God we can control. So you know what they did? They took all the loot that had been given to them by the Egyptians and they began to melt it down. And you know what they shaped? A golden calf. Go to the next slide. You know who that is? The Apis bull, a God that they were familiar with. Keep in mind, the people of Israel, they were shepherds. What are they longing for? They're longing for a security, an identity, a purpose. They thought that living free meant they would worship this one and this one would give them the livestock again so that they could go back to what, what they were before slavery, right? While God is giving them the invitations to life, they're trading it for immediate gratification. They're reaching for what's already theirs. And so then we, uh, you fast forward the clock a little bit and 40 years later, because God had to work some of the idolatry out of a generation, they enter into a place called Canaan. Now, Canaan was a place that was super fertile. Keeping in mind, this people, these people are coming from slavery into a 40-year wilderness wander where it's dry and arid, it's deserty, and they survived it. That's amazing. Now they're making their way into Canaan, which is super fertile. Now, the, the Canaan was inhabited by a place called, or by a people called the Canaanites, uh, and their, their primary god was uh, a god named Baal. He was the god of fertility, of storms, of the sea, uh, the god of destruction, 
Uh, Canaanite lore was that uh, Baal, if you go to the next slide, Baal every year would defeat the gods again and in his benevolence would offer rains to the earth, which would replenish the earth and then crops would grow again. Right, so you have this people now entering into a super, a super fertile space and Hebrew lore is like, they're terrified of the sea. They're terrified of, the, of storms. And if there's a God that already exists here who will protect us from the sea, who will protect us from the storms and who will make the land fertile. Now our question is, can the God who delivered us from slavery and sustained us through the wilderness also provide the level of fertility that the Canaanite God can? Or... Do we have to pay homage to the Canaanite God to get that kind of fertility? So their safe response was they entered into Canaan and just kind of started worshiping them both. And for thousands of years, there was this dangerous cycle of idolatry. There was the attraction to the Canaanite gods. Then there was the worship of the Canaanite gods. And then there were the prophetic warnings like Ezekiel 18, Levi- uh, Ezekiel 16, Leviticus 18, Jeremiah 2, the whole book of Hosea. These, these warnings against idolatry. It's killing us. It will kill us, right? And then we've got God's uh, redemptive pursuit. We've got the people's repentance. We've got God's mercy and a reminder, I'm your God, you're my people. Nothing else other than this. And then you have the attraction to Canaanite gods and it happened over and over for thousands of years. Ultimately, because they didn't heed the the prophet's warnings, exactly what they told the people in Leviticus 18 happened. They were expelled from the land and they found themselves in chains again in a place called Babylon under the shadow of a whole nother pantheon that I won't talk about this morning. You fast forward the clock a little bit, uh, you get into the life and times of Jesus. By this time, the people are back in the land But now the Baals have been replaced by Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. Next slide. Reason is worshiped as Athena. She's the one on the right. Politic is worshiped. uh, It takes, takes the form of Zeus. Safety takes the form of Mars, the god of war. Right? Beauty takes the shape of Aphrodite, the one without the head. And then wealth takes the form of Artemis. So now there's a whole new set of gods and goddesses in play. But within Israel itself, they had two major idols that did not resemble Yahweh, politic and religion. And they were kind of one and the same. And so if you read the life uh, and teachings of Jesus, he constantly takes note of, he, he, he zeroes in on the idolatry of the people because they believed that their religion and their politic were the things that were going to save them. And Jesus took it on unashamedly, stood in diametric opposition to their idolatry of politic and religion. He did it so well. He he offered a hopeful alternative as he was doing it and they killed him for it. Now here's the good news. The death and resurrection of Jesus, not only did it secure the reconciliation of all things, but it also defeated the powers and the principalities that animate the idols. It was an all-encompassing, all-inclusive sacrifice that did all of that. And even though God defeated the idols, the powers and the principalities in Jesus, it didn't mean that the idols stopped competing for the allegiance of humanity. Last major example. Go to the, um, if you go to the city of Ephesus, um, Ephesus is in uh, contemporary, uh, common day Turkey. Uh, Ephesus was a city of 250,000 people. Uh, it, uh, it was a cosmopolitan hub. It was a trade route between the East and the West. Um, it, 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 was, it sat right on the Caister River that at that point emptied into the Aegean Sea, so there was a great port there. It was also the center of an erotic pagan worship of Artemis. Now, there's a statue of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of wealth, and she was, um, she was portrayed as a many-breasted woman. Because if she's the giver of life, if she's the sustainer of life, then she needs lots of equipment with which to do that, right? And so they made these idols with tons of boobs and they called her the many-breasted one. Uh, And so the epicenter of Artemis worship was was in Ephesus. The building here is is an artist's rendering of the Artemisian, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. An unbelievable piece uh, of, uh, of architecture. Now here's what would happen. A city of 250,000, which is huge, I mean, by our terms, but especially then, right? 250 grand. It's a lot of people. A million people a year would travel to Ephesus to worship Artemis. 
Why? Because if you want your business to succeed, if you want kids, if you want abundance and wealth, you pay homage to Artemis. There's no greater way to pay homage to Artemis than to travel to Ephesus and do it real time in the Artemisian. Now, you can imagine just based on her statue that this is a bit bit of a sensual uh, practice of, of worship, right? Uh, and so here's what happened in the, uh, in the Artemisian. It was staffed by two groups of people. One was called the Menabixoid and one was called the Prostitute. Uh, the Menabixoid, uh, this is not G-rated. The Menabixoid were self-castrated eunuchs. Imagine this. If it's an erotic pagan cult and she is the goddess of fertility, the giver of life, the most extreme act of worship that you can engage in, especially as a male, is to castrate yourself and offer your goods to her. Thousands of men would do it. They would get in these big drunken orgies and they would do it at this one altar. Crazy. So men of Bixoid and then a thousand temple prostitutes. And so these millions, a million guests a year would come to Ephesus. They would check into their Airbnb and head up to the Artemisian and, um, and once they got to the Artemisian, they would worship Artemis sexually with one of the men of Bixoid or one of the prostitutes. And then they would buy these, this little bag of, uh, of statuettes, little tiny statues. The, the reason is you take these statues home and you place them all over your property so you're constantly seeing Artemis. Because if you're constantly seeing her, you can constantly be paying homage to her. And if you constantly pay homage to her, then she will do good things for you. That's the thought, right? Which means that uh, the, the silversmiths that made these little shrines were loaded. A million people buying these little things? Good grief. That's like a primary economic stream of the city, right? Enter Paul. Paul is a recovering idolater of reason and religion. And uh, Paul is the one who says that Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. Colossians 1.15. Interesting, we're having this conversation about idolatry. Paul says that, that G, you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus, the visible image of an invisible God. That's all we need. Orient your life around that, right? So he, he comes in preaching that. He says things like, Jesus is the ultimate giver of life. Read the book of Ephesians. In light of everything that I just said to you about this Artemis worship, Paul uses the exact same language that Artemis worshipers were using, only he says, no, Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus is the sustainer of life. Jesus needs to be the primary object of our affection and our allegiance. He never says it out loud, but what he's saying is Jesus, not Artemis, is the giver of life. Jesus, not Artemis, is the sustainer of life, the object of our affection and attention. So here's what happens in in, uh, Acts chapter 19. You can read it later. Uh, He enters into the city uh, and all he's doing is living and narrating a a better story oriented around Jesus rather than Artemis. He starts in the the synagogue. Uh, He gets booted out of there really quickly because he's heretical and kind of off message with them. So then he goes and he rents a, a place called Tyrannus Hall, which is just a public forum. And he begins talking about Jesus He invites people to orient their lives around Jesus rather than the many-breasted one. And crazy stuff starts happening, like the sorcerers start burning their recipes for their potions. Read it. It's in Acts chapter 19. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like the crazy stuff's going, like there's magicians bring their spells and they they have like like a book burning. It's nuts. Thousands of people come to know and follow Jesus. And as that happens, people are no longer buying little statuettes of Artemis. The silversmiths get hacked off. They're ticked because the economy is now getting pressed. What's going on is followers of Jesus are saying, no, this Artemis stuff is baloney. And so now these people are going, whoa, if Artemis is baloney, then the entire economy built around Artemis worship is is in danger. And so what happens in Ephesus? A riot. The entire city is rioting because a goofy looking bloke named Paul and a couple of other people are living a hopeful alternative. It literally is turning the city right side up. It's craziness. 25,000 people in the theater screaming, great is Artemis of of the Ephesians for over two hours, right? Uh, Read the story. It's interesting. They, They survived the riot, you know, uh, sorry about that, but they were, they, they survived it. Acts chapter 20, verse 1, Paul pulls Gaius and Aristarchus and the rest of the community together and he just does like a debrief. What was that like? We just survived a riot and everybody knows if you survive a riot, you can survive anything, right? 
So Paul, Paul's like, my job here is done. And he leaves an expression of Jesus in his wake. Now, the common understanding in Ephesus is if you want economic standing or social standing, you are fully immersed in Artemis. If you live any kind of alternative to Artemis, you will become a second-class citizen. And that's exactly what happened to this ragtag band of followers of Jesus. They rejected the way of Artemis. They immersed in the way of Jesus. They became, uh, they became second-class citizens. They became hard to feed their families. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. And they were killed. But 70 years later, over 80% of Ephesus came to know and follow Jesus. Amazing. Paul is in prison in Rome he hears that there's some struggles in this community. And so he writes them a letter because they're wondering, how do we follow Jesus in a context of idolatry? That seems like, a, that seems like a, an important question then and an important question today. How do we follow Jesus in a milieu of idolatry? He says two things that I want to point out. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3. He says, once upon a time, you were fully immersed in Artemis. Now you're fully immersed in Jesus. Walk in a way that's worthy of the calling. He's saying, don't dilute the gospel by dabbling in Artemis. Live the hopeful alternative marked by hospitality, generosity, sacrifice. Live that way together and the watching world's going to take note. Don't continue to dabble in Artemis. Then he goes on in, in uh, chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. He says, when you were immersed in Artemis, you were callous. You couldn't feel anymore. You were ignorant. You could not become aware of the God things around you. You were alienated. You became cut off from God yourself and others. You were darkened. You became morally bankrupt. And then he says, you became futile. That means you started to innovate forms of evil. It got crazy. That's the, because idolatry kills, right? And uh, he says, now, now you are immersed in Jesus. And so together as a community, you need to do anything and everything you can do to discern the ways in which you're dabbling in Artemis. Identify them and whatever it takes, throw it off. A really aggressive verb, throw it off. Stop it. Do it together as a community. Get to work. Audit your life. Any way in which you're dabbling in Artemis, stop it. Now, get out of the smoke-filled room because it's killing you, right? Fast forward the clock, 2,000 more years. I'm almost done, I promise. We're, like, we're getting contemporary, right? 2,000 years later, here we are, and we live in a completely idol-free society, <laughs> right? Or idolatry is in the air we breathe. And I'm a recovering idol worshiper, and you are too. Now, how do we identify the gods? Because I think they've changed from Athena and Aphrodite and Artemis and Zeus and Mars to something, something else. I want to give some credit to Tim Keller who, um, who wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. Read it. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help frame this up even better. He offers three primary categories for the gods. He says there's personal gods, there's religious gods, and there's cultural gods. Let me hit on the gods just very briefly. And as I go, I wonder what we would maybe, un I wonder if it would help us understand, ah, she's my God. That's my God. That's an idol that I'm worshiping, right? So let's go. Let's, let's take a look at personal just very briefly. He would say the three in personal are money. Uh, romance and children. Money, it's, it, the, the worship of money, sound, we sound like this. Um, once I have that career, that job, that compensation, once I've created that thing, then I will have life and meaning and purpose. Um, it, it sounds like uh, we hear ourselves say, I, I just like to work hard. I'm just innovative. I just really like my job, things like that. And those are some of the indicators that, that money is actually a, a god or a goddess. I think this is probably a predominant one for most dominant culture folk uh, in, um, uh, in, in the, the United States. Two things happen as we worship this god. We become inanimate in that we become workaholics because we're chasing life and meaning and purpose by the pursuit of and the accumulation of, of funds. Like it's going to do something for us. Like it's going to save us. Like it's going to give us meaning. So we become workaholics. Secondly, we become lonely. And I don't care what anybody says. Uh, workaholic folk, we are lonely people because we can't give our lives to the work and to the pursuit of money and success and be in actual vital relationship. Because if we were in vital relationship, we would have people who would love us enough, enough to tell us the truth 
about ourselves and how we're spending our lives. We, we criticize the ancients for the way that they sacrificed their kids. We cannot worship money without sacrificing our children. We are sacrificing our kids because we worship money. Because you cannot worship money and be in a good relationship with your children. You can't. It's impossible. So money is one. Uh, uh, the, sec- the second one that he talks about is romance. Um, his love is going to be the thing that fulfills me. Her love is going to be the thing that fulfills me. And that's just not something that, that's not just something that is, um, that is espoused or shared by, by folk who aren't uh, partnered in committed relationships. That's for people who are in marriages too. Her love is the thing that gives me meaning. His love is the thing that gives my life value. Uh, two things happen. We, we lose our boundaries and ultimately we lose our sense of integrity. No, he does not fulfill you. He is not your salvation. No, she does not give you meaning. You're reaching for what you already have because we have a God who says you are worth everything, right? Children, um, if my kids just X, if my, if my children just succeed at this, if my children just become this type of person or whatever it is, then I will have meaning and value and purpose as, as a human being. Two things happen when we chase this kind of idolatry. We elevate our kids and our parenting is like the, the, the idol. Number one, we develop kids who are totally codependent and can't function without us. That doesn't do society any good, friends. We are creating way too many codependent young people. Secondly, we develop kids who hate us because we've just smothered them their whole lives. They don't want anything to do with, with us by the time they're 18 or 19 years old. That's no bueno, right? So there's, there are implications to this. Uh, religious, I'll hit on these really quick. Truth, certainty is an idol that we chase. Yeah, we think we hold the monopoly on truth. We think being right is the most important thing. There's a lot of ways in which the scriptures talk about being a fool the most predominant is being a scoffer. A scoffer is someone who is so convinced that he or she is right that they become disrespectful to their opponents. Lots of us are scoffers. We just think we are so right that we hold the monopoly on the right way to think theologically, you know? And then we become combative with other people. And, and as an aside, the internet breeds scoffers because people who are scoffers, uh, they get the most attention. It's too bad. Uh, we, we idolize gifts. We place a disproportionate amount of value on particular kinds of gifts, mostly the, uh, mostly the more charismatic ones. And I know that I'm taking up a lot of time, but what I'm doing right now is no more important than what's happening with our one to three-year-olds right now. Actually, what's probably happening with them is more important because they're more pliable and shapeable than we are <laughs> as adults, you know? I'm just, a, I'm just a guy with a gift and I'm just using the gift to serve the community. It is, there's no hierarchy of gifts, but we idolize the gifts, the more charismatic ones, and then we lift people up as, uh, as idols themselves. And then we have communities shaped around personalities rather than Jesus. Ah, oh, man, it kills the world. We don't need any more churches built around personalities. Um, morality, I'll, I'll comment briefly. We, we lift up morality as an idol. Like evangelicals are just really good at this. Like we are the morality police. You know what I'm saying? Like we think that our morality is the thing that's, that's going to seduce God's attention and affection. Being moral is the thing that's going to earn us something. God will love us because of our, of our morality. Well, that's created a ton of shame in the world. I think it's created more harm than good, frankly. And the good news is God doesn't love you because you're moral. God loves you because he wants to. And then morality is a fruit of discipleship. God wants morality because it's a way to be whole and complete as a human and as a family. But our morality doesn't prove anything. Uh, and then there's some cultural ones, uh, if I had time. Reason. This is where Dr. King is really good. He says, yeah, science, technology, education, they're supposed to end war and poverty. And we've, done, we've made so many advances, but we've also created the, the, the possibility to annihilate the globe. So in our worship of reason, we are now hanging on a precarious uh, limb. We could kill all of us really easily. Uh, family and individualism, politics, nationalism. Dr. King says, you know, without, um, without thinking, U.S. Americans stand up and mindlessly place their hand on their heart and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. That's called nationalism. That's a false god. Why? Because our nation, specifically a flag of that nation, has no saving power. Our nation will not save any of anything. 
So we deify, if not baptize, our politician, our preferred policy, our preferred political party as most right or most Christian, thinking that if they get in, it's going to save us. Not going to happen. I refuse to pledge allegiance to anything other than the one true God, the giver of life, meaning, and value. Should make us think, and that's no disrespect to our country or to our troops or anything else like that. Let's just be careful of what we're pledging our allegiance to. That's what Dr. King is saying, and I I agree with that. So what do we do? Three last thoughts. Number one, I'm going to invite you this week uh, as an individual. Here's kind of a contemplative idea. Read through Hosea. Read or listen to the book of Hosea. Super short. Um, It's less than a cup of coffee in its length. And so um, read or listen to the book of Hosea, paying attention to two things this week. Number one, uh, how prone we are to infidelity. Like, let's get humble. <laughs> like, I'm a human being. And, um, and I, I struggle, like, my greatest struggle right now is to, uh, around idolatry, is with my wife, Jackie. I put her in a place of such affection and, and attention. And don't get me wrong, she is a total queen, but she's not a goddess. One day, I might look at her in a coffin. And if, my, if she is my sense of meaning and value and purpose and salvation, I'm screwed. Right? So like I, my own infidelity, it's just like, let's get honest with ourselves. As you read it, like pay attention to that. Secondly, pay attention to a God who pursues us relentlessly. Our infidelity does not cause God to stop. It's amazing. Uh, An exercise or an experiment I would offer is identify whatever app, whatever social media app um, you pay the most attention to with regard to image management, consumption, likes and lusts, um, purchases, Audit it like crazy. Audit your buying history. Audit your Facebook. Audit your your Instagram. Audit all of it and and do it while asking the Spirit to help you understand what your gods and goddesses are. Because the Spirit will do that. I did it at the end of 2017. Wrecked me. It wrecked me. I am so consumed with myself. Devastatingly so. That's idolatry. And I use social media as a way to worship myself. Gosh, that's a scary thing. It's changed the way that I show up on social media. I'm getting out of the the smoke-filled room because it's killing me. Uh, Last idea, Paul invites us to do all of this stuff in community. We're such a hyper-individualized people. What if we did the work, audited that app or that social media thing, and then submitted it to a couple of other people and say, would you help me understand my gods and goddesses? That's where the real work began for me. When I took the data and I said, here's what I found, help me understand what it says. And they told me the truth. Amazing. But they didn't just stop at saying, here seem to be your gods and goddesses. They helped me understand and develop a plan for what it means to throw it off, like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Friends, there's this moment in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they better bend the knee or they'll go into the fiery furnace, right? And here's what they say in Daniel 3, 16 through 18. The God that we worship is able to save us from the flames, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bend our knee to your God. Ooh, bring that to the table, huh? Thanks be to God. <laughs>